you have a Bible with you, how about if you open it up to Acts 17 this morning? And if you didn't bring one with you, you're going to find them in the racks around you, and you can pull one out there, or you can watch up on the screen that way. If you don't own a Bible, we've got uh, free Bibles in the back for you when you leave this morning, and the table in the back. If you want to take a Bible with you, feel free to do that. Really want you to have a copy of God's Word. So while you're turning there to Acts 17, uh, men, an announcement for you. This week, Wednesday morning, starts the men's fall study, and I'll be leading that. It's called Stepping Up. And so, guys, uh, 6.30 in the morning, Wednesday, or 7 o'clock at night, whatever happens to work for your schedule, if that uh, is possible for you. Um, We're going to pray in just a minute, and and we're going to explore the huge, huge questions. Um, Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Before we pray, I have a question for you. We'll just leave those questions on the screen for you to ponder for a minute in light of Acts 17. But here's a question for you. How many of us in the auditorium this morning have someone in our life that we're intimately connected with, maybe not necessarily a family member, but could be a coworker, who you would say probably does not have a relationship with God? More than 90% of us greater majority. Same was true in the 915, same was true in the Saturday night service. So this is for you. What you're going to look at this morning really is going to help you address that issue in that individual's life. And and if that's you this morning, if you're looking at this saying, I'm not really sure where I'm at in relationship with God. I'm not even sure I can know God. This is for you. So let's pray and then we'll address these things. Father, we come before you recognizing that what we're about to do is beyond man's ability. We're going to try and explore something that was written 2,000 years ago, yet you said is as relevant to our life today as it was with the day that it was written because you inspired it. So we recognize that what we need is your Holy Spirit because you've said your Holy Spirit is our teacher and our guide, and so we ask for that in a supernatural way. Focus us, Father. Keep the distractions away and allow us to focus on you and your nature and your character. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So where did I come from? Well, science attempts to answer that question, right? Science tries to help us understand. Why am I here? Philosophy wrestles with that one. That's a huge struggle for philosophy to try and say, okay, here's why you exist. How you personally this morning answer those three questions is going to be found in Acts 17. Why are you here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? Today's culture that we live in, 2015, desperately needs to know the answers to those questions. And whether or not they articulate it, whether or not it's verbalized in a daily basis, that's what people are searching for. People desperately need a proper perspective of the God of the Bible to understand who he is. Acts 17 declares that not only there is a God, but that God is knowable, right church? That not only that there is one, but that he can be known. God created you to be in relationship with him. That's absolutely why he created you, to be in relationship. How do I know that? Well, I'm going to back that up from his own words. 
Look with me at the Old Testament. I'm going to give you many passages this morning that you can write down in your notes, but here's one of them, John 17.3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Why do I choose that one to start with? That is a really significant verse for this reason. Those are Jesus' own words. The night that He was arrested, He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, He's praying to God the Father. Now, if you're on your deathbed and the last words you get to utter are going to be the most significant words, the greatest prayer, what we call the high priestly prayer in the sense that he's praying over the future believers, in that prayer, God's praying for you, church. He's praying for those who will know him in the future. And he's saying, God, I want them that they would know you. Well, God wouldn't say that. God the Son would not say that if that's not possible. So let's hold that thought and move back into where we were at last week. Acts 17, we left Paul in Athens, Greece. I know some of you have been there. Some of you are going there. It is a fascinating place. In the first century, Athens is the intellectual center of the world. It's the cultural center of the world. It's where everybody wanted to be. At its peak, it was considered the greatest city in the world, most influential university ever established. Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, they all taught there. So people, when they're on their vacations, they wanted to swarm to Greece. Lovers of all things Greek wanted to be there. So it's got this continuous population of students, artists, philosophers, politicians, constantly moving into the city, visiting the city. Some stay there. And that's where we find Paul. Verse 16 says this, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. I personally would love to see Greece. I'd love to go and study in Athens in this area where the early church was forged, these things that we're reading about this morning. But my desire would be much like yours. I'd want to go as a tourist, right? I'd want to go and just see all the archaeology and understand it. Paul's not there as a tourist. He sees this city full of people who are completely lost without Jesus. And so verse 16 says, his spirit is provoked within him. Now, if you have a New International Version of the Bible this morning or a New American Standard Version of the Bible, um, the language that's used there is too gentle. The word provoked is this word that you're going to see on the screen, paroxuno, and and it actually means to be infuriated. So Paul's not just nudged, he's angry. Now, I don't think of Paul as an angry individual based on the personality studies that we've done of him, but right here we're told he is angry in this situation. Why? Why? Athens is known for its incredible architecture and for its art history. Much of the art was dedicated to the mythological gods, the gods and their accomplishments, God's small g. And Paul's infuriated. Archaeologists have only recently discovered that the marketplace we're about to read about where he's at, the Agora, was virtually lined with these idols to these small gods, the ones that they celebrated. So for Paul, the scene is absolutely nauseating. I've come across this study this week with this conviction to pray that God would give me eyes like Paul, that I would be more provoked by the things that I see going on in culture because I live in the same world that you do and we can become desensitized, right? 
we can become hardened. Paul is not hardened. He's not desensitized. He's looking at the city with people who are far from Jesus, and he's provoked by that. Now, apparently, he doesn't want to begin working in Athens until Timothy and Silas arrive, according to this verse. But he can't keep from talking about Jesus, so he goes into a synagogue. Big surprise there, right? So he shows up in a synagogue, and he's there reasoning with the Jews. Verse 17, so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So it's his normal patterns, what we've been seeing in Acts. He shows up on Saturdays at the synagogue for Shabbat. But six days of the week... He's going out into the marketplace, into the agora. He's taking on anybody who's there, and he's dialoguing with them. What's the agora? Well, the marketplace could be thought of this way. You like beaners? You like um, Big B? They call it Big B now. I still have beaners stuck in my head. Okay, Big B? You like Big B? Um, You like uh, Starbucks? Think Big B, Starbucks, inside the Breslin Center with a farm market surrounding it take the Breslin Center and and transfer it over to New York Times Square into New York City, and you've got the hub of cultural life because this is the place where all the athletes hang out. This is the place where all the artists hang out. This is the place where all the philosophers hang out, all the politicians. They get together in the Agora, and it's not long before Paul is noticed. He's making his way around the marketplace, having a cup of coffee and dialoguing with people about who Jesus is. And the next thing we see is the Epicureans and the Stoics. These are philosophers. They're dialed in to what he's saying, and they hear this new thing going on in the Agora. So they're coming to listen because they want to understand. It's confusing. What is he saying? So we come to verse 18. It says this, And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Doesn't sound too complimentary, does it? It's not. I'll explain it in just a minute. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So here's what's going on with the Epicureans. These are individuals who believe life is all about pleasure and completely about the avoidance of pain. So whatever you can do to achieve pleasure in your life and avoid pain, that's the chief end of man. So you get a big screen TV, they get a bigger screen TV, all right? They're materialists to the core. And so everything about their focus of their day is how do I achieve more pleasure? We use the word Epicurean today because we think of it as being associated with fine living or fine dining. But the Epicurean at this time was thinking, I can achieve truth through personal experience. So Epicureans, number one at their core, number one goal in life is pleasure. But on the opposite side, you've got the Stoics. The Stoics are listening to him, and their emphasis is on personal discipline and self-control. So they're thinking pleasure is not good, evil is not bad. So these are the guys in the gym. They're the ones who are constantly showing up. I'm going to punish my body. I'm going to discipline my body. I'm going to keep everything in control. And the most important thing in their life is to follow this line of reasoning that I want to be self-sufficient at all cost. So they shut down their emotions and control their thinking and discipline their physical body. So I'm thinking like Spock on Star Trek, okay? He's got emotions. I'm going to control my emotions and shut them down. This is the Stoics. So you've got the Epicureans who are spiritually atheist, and you've got the Stoics who believe everything is God. 
You're God, I'm God, these pews are God, the carpet's God, God is in nature. Both of those philosophies do one thing. They, they fan the flame of pride and they teach people they don't need God. So Epicureans are saying, enjoy life. And the Stoics are saying, endure life. And they're confused by what Paul is saying. So one group's calling him a babbler. What is that? Well, literally, it was a term that was taken from the farmyard when chickens were picking at seed on the ground, and the chickens indiscriminately would pick up pieces of material that transferred over to a person who would, in their term, indiscriminately pick up different philosophies and then try and reiterate them back out to other people, presenting themselves as being profound. So they're insulting him. It's not flattering at all. And the other group is confused, but they're curious. They're thinking Paul's talking about two new gods, Iesus and Anastasis, the the Greek words for Jesus and the resurrection. Let's move forward into the story, verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now watch Luke's comment, verse 21. This is Luke giving commentary. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Doesn't sound like Luke thinks very highly of them, right? He's thinking, what if people are wasting their time? Now, it says they took him in verse 19. It's a very good interpretation because there's this hint of force, not physically dragging him, but they're definitely guiding him into the Oropagus. What is the Oropagus? Well, we call it today Mars Hill. And we think of this as both a location and a group of people because it's a council. It's a body, a body, a court system who met on this hill. And they've got huge responsibility. They're a powerful body. And Paul's being informed that he's required to appear before them and give an account of his teaching. So this council is responsible for something. They're responsible for overseeing education and for overseeing religious belief. And they want to know, what is this thing that you're teaching people? Tell us about this new teaching. Now, it's not a genuine interest in the gospel. It's leisure time activity. They want to know about this new thing they're hearing about. Luke said all the Athenians are achieving their truth by pursuing novelty. So you got an iPhone 7? They're the first ones in line to get one. You're curious about the things that Donald Trump is saying? They're the ones who are writing about it on Twitter sphere before anybody else can. They're interested in the newest gossip, the newest gadgets, what's being told to people. Now, Paul's got a huge problem in front of him. He's got these individuals who are super curious, but they're declaring God can't be known that there can't be a relationship with them. Now, their curiosity has a beneficial side. It sets the stage for Paul to come in there. But now he's got to explain to them, how can I actually help them to know the true and living God? Now, let's move into the next verse. It says in verse 22, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So Paul's on Mars Hill, and he's proclaiming something. I recognize you guys are religious. You're, you're going to get a gold star. You're very religious. Now watch his logical thinking. 
You're not going to see him once quote the Bible. And he's not once going to talk about the Hebrew history because it's insignificant to these people. It's futile to talk to people who are in culture and argue a position that they're not interested in. These people have no interest in the Bible. They've never read the Bible. So his point of contact is absolutely brilliant. He's looking at something in culture, and he recognizes there's something I can use. So here's what's brilliant. He says to them, you've taken a step towards God. I see the statue out in your city. I've spent time traveling around, and I see this inscription to an unknown God. You're not atheist, even though you might act like you are. In the city, I see this inscription, agnosto theo. It's where we get the term agnostic from. Agnostos theo means to the unknown God. They're declaring there is a God, but that he can't be known. Well, here's what Paul knows about them. No one searches for a destination that you believe doesn't exist. They believe he doesn't exist. They wouldn't be searching for him, but they declared he does exist. You can't deny God's existence and yet attempt to know him. Scripture speaks to that with its very first starting point for you. This is the very first thing you can take to a friend. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. He who comes to God must believe that he is. That's the starting point. You've got to accept the fact that God is. So clearly, the Greeks believe there's a God whom they don't know yet. There's no relationship. So the very thing they've chiseled in stone, declaring that he's not known, Paul stands there and says, dude, I'm telling you, he absolutely is knowable. I don't think he said it like that, but he's saying literally, you can know him. I know him. You can have a relationship with him. If you've never heard this this morning, maybe you're listening online. Maybe you're dialed into iTunes. Maybe you've never heard this before in this auditorium. God is knowable. He absolutely is. And you can have a real living relationship with him. He is a true and living God, and he wants relationship. God's existence ultimately lands on these two things, revelation and faith. Ultimately, the existence of God to understand him in our world lands on these two things, revelation and faith. I'm not talking about the book of Revelation, but I'm talking about things that God has revealed. The Bible that you hold in your hands this morning, what you see printed up on the screen, it reveals powerfully and convincingly the evidence for God's existence. Here's two things by which you can know that both internal and external. God says this himself. So here's the external evidence. Psalm 19.1, God's own declaration. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. He's talking about the solar system. The expanse is the stars. Everything that makes up our universe, those are declaring the glory of God. In other words, his existence. So that's external Internally, we have Romans 1.19, and it says this, That which is known about God is evident within people, within us, for God made it evident to them. So the Bible acknowledges 
that people need to understand this uh, cause and effect to help them rationalize the existence of God. And the Bible speaks clearly to cause and effect. It's an accepted principle in our scientific world. So we see the Bible speaking to the fact that if there is a God, there must be an effect of the God. Here's an example of that. Hebrews 3, 4. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, if I'm losing you on that, just hear this illustration. No builder calls up a lumber company and says, hey, uh, would you guys deliver me a bunch of lumber to such and such field and I'm going to build a house and they deliver the lumber and then the builder never opens the packages but he just waits and waits and he waits for a tornado to come in hopes that that tornado is going to rip all that wood up and pop down a house. No builder does that, right? See, there's cause and effect If a house exists, God's Word is saying, there must be a builder. The builder of everything is God. There's no storm that assembles a house. It's ludicrous to think that way. So how much more illogical would it be to imagine that the complexity of the universe that we live in was assembled without an efficient cause? There must be a cause behind it. So the Bible says there is cause and effect. A planner requires a a plan requires a planner, right? There has to be a designer behind the design. So Paul's speaking really loudly to these people, and he's speaking to our generation. He declares very, very loudly something that reverberates today. God not only exists, but he can be known. Let me back that up again with Scripture. First Chronicles. This is a verse you want to use with your friends. First Chronicles 28.9, For the Lord searches all hearts. He does. He searches all hearts and he understands every intent of the thought. That means God knows what you're thinking. He understands all the intent of the thoughts and if you seek him, he will let you find him. Isn't that great news, church? If you seek him, he will let you find him. That means this is a God who wants relationship. He wants to be in relationship with you. That, church, is your message of hope. You've got individuals who don't know if there's a God, whether or not He exists, or if He's existing, that He's knowable. Scripture says right there, He wants to know you. Now, having established God's existence and that He's knowable, Paul introduces them to Him. It goes like this in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So God, absolute creator. He's, he's trying to help them get beyond that first benchmark. Because this is a huge thing for them to hear. That concept is not easy to grasp if you're living in first century Athens, Greece. That there's a supreme being who's responsible for everything and not many gods, small g. The idea of a single supreme creator is totally foreign to them. So he's establishing the point by saying God made the world and all things in it. That's disturbing truth. It runs totally contrary to culture. Here's why. The Epicureans, they believe that matter has always existed and that therefore there's no creator because matter has always been. See, you thought evolution originated with Charles Darwin, right? He just took the Epicurean way of thinking and advanced it. This is a very, very ancient thinking that matter has always existed, therefore there's no creator. Everything has self-created. That's the Epicurean way of thinking. The Stoics, they believe everything is God. We just talked about that a moment ago. So you're God, I'm God, Pew is God, nature is God. 
Heard that before? Okay, common way of thinking even today. Here's the problem that Paul's up against. When the logic of a creator is eliminated, the possibility of a relationship is gone because no one's looking for something they believe isn't there. But they've already declared he's there. He's just unknowable. You see the reasoning that Paul's bringing around helping them? Now, you, you might even be struggling with the thought of God making all things. So I want to take you just very quickly through four verses, things that you can write down yourself this morning. I know your Bible opens up the exact same way mine does with the most famous verse that is around the world, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know it by heart in church, but many people outside the church know that same verse. They've heard it. They may not believe it, but they've heard it. Some people would say that verse is completely subjective. Mark, that's open to interpretation. That's your view. Many individuals see God as the first cause and that he merely set things in motion and he stepped away, allowing things to evolve and take their own form and their own shape. Why do people struggle so much with the thought of a God who is a personal creator? Here's why. My personal observation. Because a personal creator means the created is responsible to the creator. And therefore, we are accountable to him. The thought that God set things in motion and just let it take on its own spin is very attractive because that takes away the accountability factor. But Paul's argument is because God created everything, because everything is found its being in him, verse 24 says, he's not just creator, he's Lord Meaning he's ruler over all things. He's Lord over heaven and earth. He's the rightful ruler. So here's those four verses really quickly, Old Testament and New Testament, to back up the things that I'm saying. This is not unique to Genesis. This also comes from other passages. Look with me first at Jeremiah 10.12. It is he who made the earth by his power, who establishes the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. That doesn't sound like a distant God. That's a God who's up close and personal. Zechariah 12.1, He who stretches out the heavens lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. So God poured the concrete and he shaped your spirit within you. That's a very personal God. Now the New Testament gives us even more detail about how this all happened when it reveals Jesus' role in creation. Go with me up to the New Testament. It says this in Colossians 1.16. Jesus, speaking of him, by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. See, this verse right there is part of the crescendo that eventually is achieved in the book of Revelation. If you've never read Revelation chapter 4, I encourage you to do that today because you'll read about the throne of God, but as part of the crescendo, when the choruses can't hold themselves back any longer, they begin praising God for who He is. Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. See, here's what we're faced with this morning, church. Either the word of God is correct in what it's saying, or man is. Personally, I'm going with God. How about you? Okay? God's word says, I did it. 
I'm the one who's responsible for it. God's been around a whole lot longer than us. He says He did it. He did it. Now, once He's established the premise, in the beginning God made, Paul steps forward with two logical things. He says, that God is too great to be found in buildings. He's not going to be in man-made temples. But the second thought is this next one that comes out of verse 25. He says, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So, if God is God, church, if God is God, He is all self-sufficient, right? He needs nothing. He doesn't even need to be served by us. That means not only does He not exist in buildings made by man, because He's too great for that, but He doesn't need to be served by the services that take place in those buildings. See, we don't come to church to add things to God, do we? We're not making God more great by being here. Are you in agreement on that? See, God's not made more great by us being here. God's already great. We're here to learn about this God and to praise and to worship Him. It's very self-serving to think that God needs anything. We get the privilege of serving Him. We get the privilege of joining with him. So God kind of puts a stamp on it from uh, the Old Testament when he says this in Psalm verse 50. He says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. It's such a cool verse. God says, I got my own refrigerator, I don't need yours. I don't, I don't have these needs like you do. Let's move back into the story. It says this in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Now, in the Greek world, the, the Greek gods, they're very distant. They're not interested in man or the problems of man. I'm, I'm speaking of gods with a small g. But the living God, the true God, He's the God over history. He's the God over geography. That's what Paul is saying there. As creator, he's also controller over man. So he made from one man, Adam, every nation that's on earth. Now, that's shocking to the Greeks that we're all of the same bloodline. You're barbarians. I'm Greek. See, in the Greek mind... If you're Greek, man, you're superior to everybody. Everybody else that's non-Greek is barbarian, right? So this is really hard for them to hear that they're all from the same family. This is an assault to the pride of the Greeks because now Paul's saying we're all made of the same stuff. We're all of the same blood. There's many nations, but we're all one people, meaning we're all equal because we're all created by the same God. This is boggling. So in verse 26, he takes it a step further. He says, that God determined their times, meaning the rise and fall. God knew when Saddam Hussein would fall. God knew when Napoleon would fall. God knew when Stalin would fall. God raises up and God puts down. So he says, he determined their times, the rise and the fall of nations, and he determined their boundaries of their habitation, meaning the geography. He knew where the United States would be. He knew where Iraq and Iran and Syria and Asia would be. God determined those geographical locations. How do we back that up? 
The scripture says that again, echoing itself, Deuteronomy 32. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples. That's your God, drawing lines, saying, you go this far and you go no further. So Paul's building to a climax. Remember, he's speaking before these intellectuals on Mars Hill, and he's giving them some logic. God's activity as a creator and as a controller should cause us to do something. It comes out of verse 27. That they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, and even as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. If you're circling in your Bible, you're writing things down, I would circle verse 27, that they would seek God. See, that's God's desire. God's desire is that we would be in relationship with Him. His purpose in all this, His desire in all this is that people would find Him. God wired you to find Him. He says, I've placed the knowledge of God in man's heart. Where does that come from? That longing to know this God, that God-sized hole. He says, I wired you that way. The word that he's using here, it's seeking, is really graphic. It's speaking of someone who's blind, who's groping, trying to find their way, and they can't find it, and so they keep feeling along. That's what Paul's picturing here. So the apex is verse 27 when he says, he's not far from each one of us. If you seek after him, he's not far away. So for the Greeks hearing this, this is really significant. For for these individuals, this means something. It means something to those you know today. Even those individuals who never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, those individuals are still accountable because God has revealed himself in natural revelation. Let me give you an example. These Greeks cannot plead ignorance. Paul's on Mars Hill, and they would be tempted to plead ignorance, but for Paul's argument, they can't, because here's why. Scripture is completely meaningless to them. That's why he's not quoting the Bible. He's speaking from culture. It's meaningless to the Athenians to use Scripture, so Paul's speaking in their own terms. He's dialed into pop culture, and he says, even your own hip-hop artists are talking about God. When he says your poets have written about him, those are the popular artists of their day who are writing about God. Even your own poets are speaking of him. Because why? Because of the natural revelation of God. So they're without excuse. So the logical conclusion to this is if God exists and God made us, how foolish is it for us to make gods in our own image? So go with me to verse 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. See, since you're the children of God and you're made in the image of God and you and I are not made of silver or stone or gold, why would God be? If God created man, he must be more than man. He must be greater than our concepts. So they're left with a question. They're left with a choice. Does he, this God, remain the unknown God? And he makes it really personal. He makes it really personal by saying, you guys have been ignorant. And it's not an insult. He's not saying stupid. not saying dumb. He's saying you're uninformed. All that ignorance 
is overlooked by God. I'll explain that why. Look at what he says in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because God is more interested in relationship than He is in judgment, church. That may be a new thought to you. You may have always seen God as the judge who's ready to slam you to the ground. God is more interested in relationship than He is in judgment. That's why Paul is making this argument. God has overlooked times of ignorance in the past. But He's now declaring there is a day coming that requires everyone to repent. He's overlooked the ignorance of God, the ignoring of Him. It doesn't mean that men are not guilty and there are consequences for sin. It only means this, that God has held back the wrath temporarily. So verse 30 says, men everywhere should repent. Why? Because there is wrath coming. There is a day when God will pour out His wrath and there's no escaping it apart from Jesus Christ. Right, church? There's no escaping that wrath apart from Jesus. So Paul closes with this really personal application because every member listening to this has to do something with what they've heard. It says this in verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man. And you notice that I put in, in um, brackets up there on the screen, an individual, because when we think man, we think created being. Jesus is not created. He's always been. So God's carrying out this judgment through this one, this individual, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. If you've never heard this before, hear it. There is a day coming, and it is a fixed day, a prearranged day in which God will judge. And it's not optional, right? We would like it to be. (laughs) God, I'm kind of tied up that day. Sorry, my appointment book is full. (laughs) there's no option on it. The only option that's available to us is whether or not we embrace the truth or reject it. And, And since this day is fixed and it's rapidly approaching, my personal opinion, I think it's closer now I can confidently say than it's ever been before, right? Every day it's closer, but it looks like it's rapidly approaching. Because it's rapidly approaching, how do we respond to that? What do we do with what we're hearing this morning? Here's the first thing you need to recognize. Recognize who the judge is. The one who sits in the judge's seat is the one we answer to. And that means we want to make sure that's a righteous judge, right? We want to know that that one who's going to judge our eternal destiny is righteous. Wouldn't you love if every decision that was handed down in a courtroom was always from someone who never made mistakes? That would be great. This is what Scripture is talking about. One with a 100% perfect record, he judges in righteousness. So who is this one? Well, on the screen you'll see John 5.22 because Jesus is speaking and he tells some startling information. He says, For even not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That means Jesus is going to sit on the white throne, the white throne of judgment. 
And in that day, with the utmost precision, that judge is going to bring to light every word, every thought, every single action, and reveal it and judge based upon that individual and their actions. Who doesn't have to stand before the white throne, that judgment seat? The believers in Jesus Christ. See, there's two judgment seats. There's the judgment seat called the Bema Seat of Christ in which he awards those who are the believers. And there is the white throne judgment, the judgment seat of Christ in which he judges the non-believers. And every non-believer will stand before him as the righteous judge and they're going to have to give an accounting. So that's the first thing you need to know. Who is that judge going to be? And the second thing you need to know comes from verse 31. God furnished proof of this by raising him from the dead. God authenticated. It's God's approval. It's proof that God says this is legit. So Paul's argument is this. There's no excuses. There's absolutely none because the proof is in. Everyone's going to be judged by what they do with this truth. To reject Jesus is to reject God's intervention. To reject Jesus is to open yourself up to future judgment. How amazing is it that the judgment will be delivered by the one who is rejected? That is an amazing thought. That judge gets to sit on the throne. So we end the story with verse 32 because you get a typical response here. Verse 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So with all of the collective wisdom represented in the first century, with all the culture and all the advanced education, the 30 members of the Oropagus sitting on Mars Hill have rendered their decision. <laughs> what a joke. And the majority of them sneer at him. They still don't know the one true living God. Why? Because there's no place in Greek thought for a resurrection. Who ever heard of anything so ridiculous? So the response is what you would expect. It's very predictable. They had the outright scorn. Once they understand what Paul has been talking about in the Agora, it's over. Okay, we're done. We don't need to hear any more from you. Some laugh right out loud. But Paul is not entirely ignored as the last verse shows us. It says this in verse 33. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius and others with him. There's a cool thing about Dionysius. Dionysius the Areopagite is called an Areopagite because he's a member of the council, the Areopagus, right? He's part of the judicial team. So out of 30, Paul gets one. One individual plus the woman who's mentioned, Demarius, and those who are their attendants who are listening, they're dialed in. They not only recognize God's existence, but they understand now he's knowable, I can have a relationship with him. And so they respond to what they've heard through God's messenger. And because of that, they now know the unknown God. Today, you and I have seen the use of the knowledge of culture, the knowledge of pop culture, not necessarily to agree with it and the direction that it's going, but to help those people understand who Jesus really is. So you got somebody in your life that really needs to understand God? By the way, I think this is an awesome setup for where we're going with revealing Jesus next week. But if you've got somebody in your life who needs to know, who's trying to understand, the best starting point for speaking into someone's life, 
who has no knowledge of the Bible and not really sure if there is a God or if he's even knowable is always to start with explaining the God behind creation. Because God says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And science is beginning to recognize, yeah, there's more to this universe than what we understood. You start there. Start there in those conversations with people that there is a God. Where do you go from there? Maybe even take them back to the website today to help them see this teaching. Maybe it'll take them to the next step. But for whatever it's going to do for you today, I think it's going to stimulate much conversation at lunchtime when you go out of here. So here's another thing that we've addressed. We've addressed this issue that's on everyone's heart. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? I end with one verse, and I take you back mentally to where we were at in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in the garden, literally. He's on his deathbed, and he's praying to God the Father. Let's look at his prayer. John 17, 1, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, that's you believers, God has given you to Jesus, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Isn't Scripture amazing? How God links all of these pieces together to help us understand because we're people who are seeking after him. We want to know him. So he gives us things like this to say, you're absolutely on the right track. I want relationship with you. If that's you this morning, if you're seeking to know God, I'd be honored to talk with you after the service. Just come up and say, hey, that's me. I'd, I'd be thrilled to talk to you about how to know God better. For the believers here, I'm going to pray for you right now that God would help you translate what you've heard this morning into action this week. Let's do that together. Father, I, I pray specifically for your blessing on the individuals who have chosen to be here today and that your, your hand of blessing would rest heavy on these who have spent time studying your word have dedicated themselves over this last hour and 20 minutes to know you and to praise you so Father, we ask that you would take it and that you would translate everything that we've done here into action for you, that we would speak more confidently and graciously and deliberately. Father, I ask that you would encourage and that you would give courage where courage is necessary. For those who are perhaps seeking this morning, trying to understand you. God, I ask that you'd come around them and closely embrace them with your Holy Spirit. Reveal more of who you are. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we ask these things. And all God's people said, amen.